Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Sension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. All right, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to episode 13. This is actually part two to episode nine. Uh, this is our second in-studio recording, so hopefully this sounds a little better. Um, to help you catch up to speed, both those who are on my deshi and any listeners who might find or have found this topic interesting, I'd just like to remind everyone of the original context. Uh, this or these writings are also found on Ike Web, where at one time I was a member of the Grindstone column and an avid poster there. Uh, it is a great source for beginners to check out, so I highly recommend Ike Web. Uh, just make sure, in my opinion, that your training moves predominantly away from the keyboard and onto the mat as much and as soon as possible. But there you'll be able to read uh, exactly what I'm reading to you here. The reason I've taken this discussion to the podcast format is I wanted the ability to be able to comment and to have my, my mind and my discourse uh, flow as it will to either make points better or to bring up related points that help one understand the overall piece that is being written and shared. So there in Nike Web, I gave um, probably, I think it's after the third, it might be after the second part, I gave the context. I shared with everyone how this came about. I believe I also did that in episode nine, but... It's written out, and I'm just going to go ahead and, and use that uh, to start what we're talking about here and catch everyone up to speed or to remind people what we're actually working with, in my mind, when we're talking about how to run a, an Aikido dojo or a traditional dojo or even an independent dojo. Those things all go together for me, as you would find out if you stay to the end, how and why. So looking at that context section, um, let's just start with me pulling out some pieces from that context writing. So on to the piece. I share our works here and in other places to help refine my message, as happened with the first post in this thread, and also because I do believe in what I state and do. Because of that, I share it freely with those that might, might be facing a particular obstacle I too faced. I think maybe they will find it helpful. Often, people bother to ask if they can copy or borrow something, and an inner part of me always finds such a request odd. While I do appreciate the courtesy and, a, 
and a courteous person. Inside, I always think, why should I care what you do with it? It's yours. I came across this kind of maxim recently, and it said, you know, if you want to understand an idea, write about it. If you want to master an idea, teach it. And I think that explains a lot of why I take the time to write something uh, down. It's, you know, it has the dual benefit of helping people not training with me, people that might face a similar problem or people that are just interested in these kind of ideas. Of course, it helps the people that are training with me understand how and why they're being trained the way they are. Uh, but selfishly, there is a, a, a part that serves me that I've used ever since graduate school, uh, which is, hey, write it all out, and you'll get better insight. You'll be able to coordinate your ideas. Um, you'll be able to unify your thought patterns, etc. And so, uh, yes, that is something that is going on here as well. Uh, what is not going on is any kind of, you know, evangelical effort wherein I see it as my need to save Aikido, the Aikido world, or save any individual in and of themselves. To be truthful, I'm quite suspect. Uh, I, I find that quite suspect. I'm quite suspicious of those people that uh, will disseminate information uh, with the or underneath the banner of I'm out to save so-and-so you know from their own ignorance uh, for me that's always been a truth game in in Foucault's sense and just another will to power in the Nietzsche sense so I tend to stay away from those things and that's part of the reason why Anyone that hears these things or, you know, reads these things, it's your information. There's no need to ask me what and when you can do something. Uh, I treat them almost like sand mandalas. You know, you make them, they have a lot of attention to detail, there's a lot of focus and concentration, a lot of self-investment, but ultimately we're, we want the wind to blow them away. The reason for that is because any kind of intellectual grasping of a practice like Aikido is in some ways wrong. Wrong in the sense that it's an immature state of achievement. And that goes even for writings that I might use to coordinate my thinking uh, ultimately, I don't want the writing, I want the coordinated thinking, and ultimately, I want the coordinated thinking to operate at an unconscious level in my practice, in my daily doing, in my action, at the level of being. So, that's where this is coming from. But why, why did this come about? Um, let me go back to the context piece and explain, explain that.
In fact, that is how this piece came about, explaining that might assist others gain more context for what is being stated. That's one of the goals. For additional context for those not in a sensei deshi relationship with me, but that would like to understand more accurately, I would recommend visiting our other media outlets. There's tons of information there by now, and none of it comes with a fee. It's all free. So if you go to our website, you'll see tons of writings, tons of videos. Uh, these things are in the hundreds now. Um, continuing, some might find this helpful because I seem to be um, off of most people's spectrums, such that in the end, both parties at the polls hate me equally for supporting the other side. Uh, this is just one of those things in, in life. If It is what it is. Um, when you reconcile the polls, uh, people who have not yet reconciled the polls will tend to see you as the friend of their enemy on both sides. It just happens. Back to the piece. Summarizing, a person that had noticed, uh, noticed us on our social media outlets saw us facing a problem similar to his. We seemed to have solved it from his point of view and from my own, but not in a typical way and not in a way most think it should, should or can be solved. He politely and with good intention asked if I would share with him how we went about and go about solving said problem. That problem is the two goals listed in the writing. So this will remind you what we said at the beginning of episode 9. So problem 1, how do I increase my dojo membership? And problem 2, how do I increase my quality of transmission so as to keep the art of Aikido thriving into the future? Summarizing my own quick response to him, I hold that the, ins that the ensuring of the latter brings about the former. I then explained to him that I would like to use his question as a catalyst for doing what I always try to do, leave a roadmap of sorts for my deshi. He agreed to receive my answer in this format, and these pieces uh, posted on IQWeb and discussed here. And also on our Facebook page, our website, etc., is just that response to him. So remember these two points as we go through everything. How do I increase my dojo membership? How do I increase the quality of my transmission as an instructor or a dojo cho? And then the proposed solution that the latter, increasing your quality of transmission, will increase your dojo membership. That's the solution. These, these three things go together for me. And I hope to bring that to you as we continue with part two. So part two, on with the piece. The part two is titled Fallacies. So it is my opinion that these fallacies get in our way of understanding how First, how to improve the transmission of our Aikido, of our art, and also then how to use that to increase our membership. Uh, these fallacies are the problem. So in part two, that's what I go on discussing. All right, on with the piece.
The following commonly held Aikido Dojo business fallacies are not listed in any priority. All fallacies listed below are being looked at from the point of view of developing a comprehensive business model as described in part one of this essay. So here's the first fallacy. So fallacy. You should model your dojo after a more senior dojo or a hanbu dojo. Now the discussion on that fallacy. The underlying mindset supporting this fallacy is, quote, there's no point to reinventing the wheel, unquote, or, quote, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, unquote, or even, quote, they must know what they are doing, unquote. Only the, real the reality is that it is likely broken since their mats are often empty and low energy. Uh, they're not operating as a commercial draw, in other words. Or they don't know what they're doing because they never thought things through from a business perspective. And you might not want to wheel in the first place. So ultimately, this concern with dojo member membership, increasing it, it does have its artistic underlying rationale. So, you know, for example, the quality of my art's transmission can soon be made irrelevant if there is no one to transmit said art to. Um, but equally, it is also a commercial issue. If, my, if I don't have members in my school and I can't afford to stay open, then again, the transmission of my art is not likely to succeed and equally I may not be able to continue teaching it because I simply cannot afford it. All this goes together and um, a key concept here is what I would call institutional inertia. Uh, this phrase came to me first in, uh, in law enforcement training in the tactical community uh, it quite parallels what I see in Aikido and because it is likely just a human tendency. It is part of the way our humanity presents itself in the world we opt to live in. So what is institutional inertia? Insti institutional inertia is when an idea is transmitted from one person to another or one segment of an institutional organization to another segment of said institutional organization without question and without verification. You can kind of think of it as a doctrine, a doctrine mentality. So it, it's one of the current scientific understandings of the word doctrine is that, hey, this is valid, and because it's valid, it goes without question. And this is quite the inverse of what we want, uh, especially when so much is at stake. Um, but it is also you know, a violation of our more modern scientific principles. It's precisely because it went without question that we cannot and should not consider it valid. Uh, but it is something that has functioned in human society probably since the beginning of time where we see one person doing it and we just adopt it as our own. It goes without question. And this will go anywhere from how do you do Ikkyo to how do you do Idimi Nage to what is Jiwaza to 
what is Aikido to how do you run an Aikido dojo business? And the first thing I'm proposing is start questioning it. If the mat is empty, then they're doing it wrong. If the mat is low energy, then they're doing it wrong. And remember that wrong is coming from our, our first propositions, right? We want to be able to transmit the art at a high quality because that will keep our mat crowded and that will solve the commercial issue underlying this perspective or these questions that were raised. Um, so you just inversely are looking at something. They can't be doing it right. A priori, if the mat is empty or the mat is of low energy. There's some other things that go with this too. Um, if the mat is gender specific, so a mat crowded with all men is doing it wrong. A mat crowded with all women, they're doing it wrong. A mat crowded with all children, they're doing it wrong. A mat crowded with people only 30 to 60 years old, no teenagers, for example, no people in their 20s, they're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong from the three propositions listed at the start of this. They're doing something. It may not be wrong for what they're doing, but if your efforts and your intentions is to secure the transmission of the art and by doing so populate your mat so that your dojo is commercially successful, they're not doing it right because you can't do that with any of those things. For example, if everybody is... 30 to 60 years old on my mat, um, the likelihood is that they're physically incapable of training at martial levels where I will maintain and or discover the martial insights into Aikido strategy and tactical architecture. But you go deeper than that. Why, why, why are there no younger people on there? And you'll see uh, it's not physically challenging. So th the very thing that supports a geriatric mat, let's say low physical challenge, is the very thing that turns away the younger crowd who might have another concern, which is I would like to get physically strong. I would like to be highly mobile. Both of those things have a great tactical relevance. And when you start taking away tactical relevance, such as mobility and strength, you start taking away even just tactical concern. So if people aren't able to move because we don't make movement a requirement of our pedagogy or we don't include movement training outside of, you know, Aikido tactical architecture. We don't include movement training or we don't include strength training in our pedagogy. Then we're telling people, 
It's okay not to be able to move. It is okay to be weak of limb. And by default, there's a there's an innate, intuitive invalidity that hits the person that's looking from the outside in. There is a whole bunch of cultivated ignorance that leads us to believe that we can uphold a martial concern while working toward and or accepting weakness and immobility. So if we're not training for it, with it, toward it, eventually your culture will start to erode martially. You get all kinds of martial, and I'm air quoting here, explanations which defy not only every other art's martial explanations, but defies human experience for those that have been in martial situations. And even the non-initiate, they're looking in from the outside. It just makes no sense. And by default then, your mat looks like it looks geriatric and non-martial. And now you are unable to satisfy the first issue, which is how do I get my mat crowded? It might go the other way. You might have a mat and it is crowded by uh, people of the male gender and does not have a large population of female deshi. Again, what is going on there? What makes that possible? You know, that question right there. What has to be possible for this, for X, to look like X? This is how we see through fallacies. And to, and to not adopt the institutional inertia as doctrine. So if I have a mat that is predominantly males, one thing that lends itself towards that is we have an understanding of Aiki and of Aikido's tactical architectures, um, such, for example, a, an understanding of tactical architectures wherein bracing angles are utilized instead of ground paths. Let's just use that as an example. And as such, then, you're basically working with external levers and fulcrums, and even though there are mechanical advantages to those kind of levers and fulcrums, uh, there is still a work ceiling to them, and so they are... Um, utilizing strength and their success rate is very much relevant to the strength capacity of the deshi. And as a result, you don't have an art that maintains the original mechanical advantage or work ceiling that was assumed by practicing said art. So we see this, for example, in... Um, in jiu-jitsu now, uh, people are not taking the time to make their way through the training 
uh, and as a result, the their ability to fight somebody that has uh, 30 pounds on them, 50 pounds on them, 100 pounds on them, it goes way down. You, d you see fewer and fewer of those people because they're utilizing more uh, external, primitive, simplistic, mechanical advantages of fulcrum and lever or bracing angles. There's a ceiling to those tactics. And that ceiling is much more dependent upon physical strength than something else like Aiki or ground path or Kokyu. And I'm not talking about force powers. Again, that's a whole other thing. If you have a mat crowded with people who are all doing force powers, apply the anti-fallacy reasoning. What makes it possible for that mat to be crowded that way? You find the same suspect elements. So if, if our mat is crowded with predominantly males, you're going to see uh, bracing angles, external levers and fulcrums, simplistic, primitive mechanical advantages, um, you're not going to see the actual depth of the art. And as a result, w women that come onto the mat will not have the success rates as a male who is generally in more possession of upper body strength. You don't see it. So... What's, what are you telling them? Hey, uh, you're not strong enough. Uh, what are you telling them? Hey, look, we're proving you're too weak. Uh, not to mention, bracing angles, external fulcrums and levers are not the art. So the quality of our transmission is very much right there and then affecting our dojo membership. You could do the same thing. If your mat is crowded only with younger people, no older people in there, no older people in there capable of thrashing the hell out of younger people, you probably have a very primitive understanding of the art. You're probably utilizing geometric and architectural elements that are predominantly relying upon physiological strength only. All this for me goes back to a basic kind of worldview that, that underlies arts like Aikido. To simplify greatly, uh, this is just Taoist principles. The yin and yang are always present and the harmony of these two things are more indicative of wellness, rightness, virtue, whatever positive attribute you want to give it in contrast to an imbalance or an outright absence, which is just an imbalance to an extreme of one of these elements is indicative of unwellness or whatever negative attribute you want to give it. 
So the fallacy of, well, this is how, this is how the dojo was set up at Hambu Dojo. And so I'm going to set it up here. Well, all right. if Hambu Dojo is empty and low energy, yeah, no, don't. You're just a victim of institutional inertia. If Humble Dojo is out of balance, not in accordance with the Tao, yeah, don't. You're going to have to tread new ground. And, and that's just the start. There's many more questions you have to ask. But you start freeing yourselves from institutional inertia when you ask, what is in place that makes what I'm seeing possible? You don't even ask, is it right or is it wrong? You just start with that. Eventually, you'll see your reasons, their reasons, and you'll bring to yourself a kind of freedom, a kind of choice, a capacity. You'll regain your will. And, and that's precisely what we want to use when we go ahead and design our own ideal dojo. So back to the piece. The first unsaid and negative consequence of this fallacy that I would like to point out is that its adoption very often guarantees that one's dojo will contain business and cultural aspects not consci consciously selected. So that's that institutional inertia. As such, one loses the market viability of having their dojo be unique, i.e. one of a kind, and one may end up struggling to reconcile unreconcilable and contradictory combinations of business strategy and dojo culture. So let's stop there. So from a commercial point of view, you know, no, let me share with you a story. Um, when I lived in Kyoto, there was a McDonald's on one side of the street, and on the other side of the street, there was a restaurant, I believe his name was uh, Lotoria. And it was quite humorous for me because I lived at a time when Eddie Murphy made his movie Coming to America, and in that movie, his family runs a fast food restaurant called McDowell's, and it is a direct ripoff of McDonald's, so it has a kind of M arch uh, on their sign that, you know, resembles the M of McDonald's, the golden arches, and it uses the red and yellow scheme all this kind of stuff. Well, a Lotoria was exactly like that. So, all our friends... First, I had to explain to uh, all my Japanese friends that <laughs> there was this movie, uh, and they had the restaurant called McDowell's, so we all had to watch the movie, and it was quite humorous. Um, and then also, to uh, I had a European friend from Germany, and he had seen the movie because he was into American culture, so he, he thought it was just hilarious that this, it was literally, you know, right across the street in a linear line. Um, 
and he liked it though because it was just a little cheaper than McDonald's, but it tasted exactly like McDonald's. <laughs> so, when when you're trying to start a business, it's really uh, I imagine some can do this. I imagine it has to do with timing, like how if if uh, if you can get in on that ground floor. Uh, mimicking the successful business might do something for you, uh, but if you can't, then it's just parody and and fodder for American comedies. Uh, and what happens is is that you you might get some people such as well, it costs less there, and it's pretty much the same thing. But your success capacity is going to be limited because you you've put yourself under the uh, glass ceiling, so to speak, of the larger corporation, because you're just offering what they offer. You are the fake offering. Uh, you're the alternative. Uh, and so in many ways, it's a very poor business model because you're not offering anything unique. You're not offering anything new. And it begs the question, uh, why should I go there then? Uh, and when that question is coupled with, uh, why should I go there then, especially when they're the copy, they're the fake one? Um, and it's always, in terms of martial arts, if you model yourself off of hombu, off of a hombu, or off someone else's, usually you'll see this problem when you're modeling off of a senior deshi. So if you have your Hombu Dojo and your, your Doshu is there, uh, you can kind of get away with it when you are a student of the Doshu. You, you don't see as much negative ramifications of following this fallacy. But if you are the Deshi of said Deshi, who is a Deshi of the Doshu, and your school now looks exactly like their school, who looks exactly like Hambu, uh, oftentimes you don't gain the benefits because some of those benefits are dependent on distance. Many people who start a martial art actually start out of convenience sake. It's actually one of the things that you have to train out of them. You have to teach them uh, and cultivate within them discipline. And discipline is uh, doing the right thing because it's the right thing. Convenience is the exact opposite. Convenience is doing the thing because it's the easiest thing to do. Um, so many people, however, will come to a school because it's the school that's close to them. It has nothing to do with the quality of transmission. It had nothing to do with the skill of the teacher. Uh, it had nothing to do with the Federation Allegiance. I, again, we cover, we'll cover this fallacy uh, in the upcoming text, but it has nothing to do with it. They're just, you, your dojo, your school, is next to the bus stop where I get off uh, when I'm done with work. So I figure I could go in, I could work out, and then I'm, I, I'll go back to my house, and I'll watch my videos, and I'll binge watch, and I'll eat my chips and not move and slowly, you know, become geriatric. And you ha your job as a teacher who's interested in the uh, transmission quality of the art, you're going to have to deal with all that.
Like I always say, you can't run a dojo believing that the Buddha is going to walk inside and so you can spend your time wasting. Wasting it, waiting for that Buddha to arrive. You have to, in your program, get people to a place where they can actually receive a high-quality transmission. And that includes moving and teaching people, moving people away and teaching people how to move away, assisting people in the cultivation of discipline. So moving away from convenience and assisting them in the cultivation of discipline. But most people are just, you're near my house, so I'm going to go there. Well, you, you might have been following that same suit. It seemed to work. Uh, you know, it just seems the norm. So much so, like in most places, there is no training in discipline. The discipline is kind of assumed that it's going to come to you because you do, you know, a thousand ikkyos over the year. This reminds me of a, a training I just did for my law enforcement agency. You know, in, in, again, in the tactical community, uh, warrior virtues are upheld uh, because of their practicality and their undeniability, which is there because the consequences are irreversible and always dire. Meaning, if you mess up, someone could die. And there's no reset button on that. You can't put in another quarter. Dating myself there. You can't turn it on and off. There's no reset. You messed up. And that life might be your own. But it doesn't stop there. Because if you're the matriarch or patriarch, that's your kids' lives too. If you read the ACEs study, and you should, you'll see that the loss of a parent is an adverse experience, and those kind of things go on to impact us as adults in very, very tragic ways. So it might be your life, but it's not just your life. It's your children's lives. It might be your life, but it's not just your life because maybe it's the hostage's life that you're now there not to save. And then their kids' lives. Maybe it's not your life. Maybe you messed up and your partner got killed for it. And again, it's not just their lives. It's their kids. It's their village. So you cannot afford to mess up. So martial values, martial, martial virtues are always upheld in 
the tactical community, whether it be military or law enforcement. But as in all communities, there is a thread of institutional inertia where ideas go unquestioned and practices go unheeded. So, one martial virtue is no quit. You have no quit in you. You're going to have to kill me before I quit. You'll, you'll hear that all the time. You can see this in uh, the Discovery documentary on Buds. It's all about who's going to quit. Who has quit in them? It's, it's very similar in law enforcement. In a law enforcement academy, it is not unheard of to have a 50% attrition rate. Usually you're somewhere around 30 to 50. Depending on the agency from the academy up through field training, or let's go even earlier than that, up through the hiring process, all the way through the academy or the pre-academy, the academy, the post-academy, and field training, some agencies have an attrition rate as high as 99%. And everyone can say, I, I will not quit. I will not quit. It's easy to say it. That's how institutional inertia works. We just say it. We just repeat it. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't matter if we're wrong or not. So you just repeat it. You gain the cultural capital of repeating what someone else repeated. Oh, you're saying what I heard so-and-so say, so you must know because they know. So there's even a self-interest in institutional inertia. You'll gain the cultural capital. It's the accepted view. You're spouting it. Then you must know. So here we have this no-quit mentality. I hope it's pretty self-explanatory uh, you know, why no-quit might be important, Marshally. Right? No-quit. Let's go into it a little bit, actually. No-quit. No-quit attitude is about doing what must be done Regardless, let's just stop there. That's no quit. Doing what must be done regardless. And then you can fill in the blank and it'll be filled in with a lot of things. Regardless of pain, regardless of discomfort, regardless of pending defeat and doom. Got the idea? No quit is a colloquial phrase simply describing describing the practice and virtue of discipline this discipline is just doing the right thing so the attrition rates come from yeah you're not doing what you need to do to make it through It's very different from the current civilian mentality 
where excuses and justifications are very much a part of our self-identity. No quit discipline is the opposite of that. There's just what has to be done. And then the doing of it. Failures or unsuccess, unsuccessful missions or operations are not justified or excused. They are owned and they are first and foremost recognized as not doing what needed to be done. So, here I am, I'm doing this training. And in this training, we're going to apply stress onto the trainee. The stress is coming in the form of performing in front of others, failing in front of others, but also in the unknown. The scenario that we used in the training doesn't let the trainee get any um, precursors to what is going on. You can think of it as an ambush situation. And then there's the stress of their own imagined self-doom, their own personal extinction, their death, their murder. And these things go ahead and trigger the potential for what we call an amygdala hijacking. And that manifests itself in an incapacity to make decisions, which manifests itself in deciding or going with the wrong thing, the wrong decision. Because usually the wrong decision is noted because you are not taking into account the totality of the circumstances. You're just doing whatever. You've lost connection with your environment because you lost situational awareness because your mind went egocentric. And so you're out of harmony with your situation and your environment. Your decision is in all likelihood going to be the wrong one because it's based on limited input. This, this is really nothing more than what Takuan discusses in the chapter one of the Unfettered Mind translation. Just go read that. And he didn't discover it. This is old Buddhist stuff. Ancient, all the way to subcontinent India. They were talking about this. But here it is in modern law enforcement training, still very relevant and soon to show very relevant to this discussion. So the situation is that scenario, and the trainee gets so ambushed in his mind that he doesn't he just quits he quits the scenario. 
kind of has the mentality of like, oh man, you guys got me. Now, I'm not picking on this training because I'm trying to point out this is, this is the human condition at this point. It is something that all trainers, including Aikido teachers, must contend with and address and successfully navigate. Now, don't get stuck on the individual. Anybody can be brought to this point because it's in us now. Just like it's in us to pick schools that are just close to us. People that trained in the 70s you know, and the 80s, we traveled far. When I studied karate, my teacher's school was 12 hours away. When I started... Uh, getting serious into Aikido, that my Aikido dojo was an hour away. That was if there was no traffic. When I got more serious, that Aikido school was two to four hours, I'm sorry, four hours to six hours away. That's not most people. Most people don't have discipline. They have convenience. So this trainee, right, I go, hey, what are you doing? You just quit. Why are you quitting? You're getting killed. Draw your weapon. Draw your weapon. And he finally gets back in the scenario, but really, am I going to be there? Is someone else going to be there to tell him, draw your weapon? Draw your no. It's got to come from within. And this is another marker of discipline. Doing the right thing. It's got to come from within. There's no such thing as external discipline. So afterwards, we do a debrief. We always do a debrief after these kind of scenarios. We talk about what went right, what went wrong. Part of that is you have to be brutally honest. Because again, you know, using our nomenclature... In civilian culture, justifications, excuses, those fly. And also, stretching the truth flies. Brutal, brutal honesty is actually discouraged. It makes sense. The stakes aren't usually real. The stakes are imagined. But in the tactical community, the stakes are real, so brutal, being brutally honest is the way things have to be. So it's my turn to jump into the debrief, and I, I say, hey, look, you can't just have the slogan in your head, no quit. And you cannot imagine that when you're faced with life or death, that you're going to all of a sudden discover the virtue of no quit. You have to train for it every day. 
you have to bring yourself in all kinds of ways to the dichotomy of convenience and discipline. To the dichotomy where discomfort actually has a vote and to where it doesn't. You can do that in terms of physical fitness. You're going to make your training so hard that you're going to motivate yourself to start self-dialoguing. Oh, you should probably take a rest. You should probably... Maybe, maybe your bone, your femur could explode right now if you keep this up. You're going to have to train past that to where self-pity comes in. Man, you just don't feel good. You, you didn't get a good night's sleep last night. You've done enough. Many, most, most Aikido Dojo will talk about discipline, but they don't ever get you here. They don't take you into these dark, deep waters. They leave you at the surface, and you get to talk about it, talk with it, talk like it, just like this trainee. For you to ask him before the scenario about no quit and discipline, he could repeat the discourse. But the work is not being done. I saw another training, um, a Sistema practitioner. He's at a well-reputed gunfighting school. And he's a guest instructor there. And the operator, owner-operator of this school, he is all about questioning his own institutional inertia and the institutional inertia that came to him. I really think it's something very much a part of warrior training because you just can't accept things. We're not afforded doctrine. We're not afforded being able to practice unquestioning. The stakes are too real. So, I didn't find it unique at all that this highly reputed firearms instructor goes ahead and hires or invites this Sistema instructor to come talk to the students at this class. And the Sistema instructor is doing a, a presentation and he, he begins by drawing a distinction between a shooter and a gunfighter. Because in the firearms world, and just in the population in general, including uh, law enforcement, 
including the military, that learning how to operate a firearm uh, makes you a gunfighter or makes you a fighter, period. And it's just not true. Marksmanship, expertise with the manipulation of a firearm, makes you a shooter. Does not make you a fighter. Does not make you a gunfighter. A hell of a lot more has to go into that. And he's going through what some of those things might be. And he gets to this topic of no quit. And he brings up this very point. He says, oh, I know a lot of shooters who will talk about no quit. But you put them in push-up position for two minutes and you won't see it. As a side note, I've seen the, seen this instructor uh, do uh, push-up position for like 20 minutes. There's another side note. And this is totally veering us away from the discussion, but I, I just have to say it's just so ironic to me the reputation that Sistema has with what I call the dabblers of the martial arts, talking about what's real and not real. When many of these guys were on Soviet special forces and have actually killed people So it's just really silly to point at them and go, yeah, you don't know what's real. Let me scoop my butt around and try to pull guard on you. So back to our topic. You have this Convenience tendency. And maybe you practiced it too. So maybe that first Deshi school is not that close to Hambu. But maybe your school is closer to their school. And again, it begs the question... If your school is just like their school, why should I go to your school? Why should I not go to the deshi who's one step closer to the doshu? Maybe not everyone's going to ask that question because most people will go, well, because this one's near my bus stop. But you know who is going to ask that question? Your best students. And now what happens to your mat? Your mat's going to lose energy. It's lost people. And so just in terms of marketing, you're like, you're trying to be McDonald's and McDonald's is across the street. It is more successful a business model to be unique than to be like someone else. Back to the piece. 
A good example of the latter would be one of overemphasizing the philosophical and academic aspects of the art while wanting to cater to law enforcement or younger males, combat effectiveness, and or wanting a crowded and energetic mat during class. Another example would be running a walk-in teen program while wanting to cater toward people looking at Budo as a life practice. My point, every aspect of your dojo should be consciously selected. So what I'm trying to say there is usually when you get and practice institutional inertia, you'll manifest contradictions in your business model. So you want people to come to your school but it looks like the other school. Why should they come to your school? Maybe your school you're modeling on, modeling your school on, was heavily into philosophical and academic aspects of the art, but you want to cater to law enforcement, or you want younger males in there, or you want your Aikido to be more martial. It's not going to happen. Or maybe you want, uh, you, you know, the school you're modeling it, modeling your school on has a very large active teen program. But what you want to do is you want to have Budo as a way of life. So you're trying to set up training that way, but teen, the teen generation or the teen age group is a transient group. They often have tons of different interests. Well, I'm trying to do Buddha as a way of life. They often leave for college. They lose interest. Their parents, they're dependent upon their parents for rise. Their parents lose interest. It's probably not the best environment for having a dojo geared towards Budo as a way of life. Back to the piece. So again, my point, every aspect of your dojo should be consciously selected. Every aspect not in your dojo should be consciously rejected. A consultant should be able to walk through your dojo and point to any aspect of your model or even any item in your dojo, etc., and ask, why is that there? And you should be able to tell them exactly why it is there, and also why something else is not there. By doing this, this allows us to gain one of the most basic sound business practices, already mentioned above, that is, your dojo should be one of a kind. Having your dojo run or be like everyone else's or even like somebody else's requires you by default to seek a smaller share of someone else's market. This can only be lucrative if you are in early on said market and if said market is still in its growth phase and only if you are able to organize the market according to a pyramid shape. This is exactly what we saw with the Japanese Shihan that started the United States Aikido Federation and the other, other Federation movements. Today, even those schools, whether the Shihan is still alive or not, are a former shadow of what they once were, of, once, of what they once used to be in terms of dojo membership. As I mentioned in part one, 
It makes no sense to try to enter the BJJ MMA commercial markets this late in the game, and therefore it makes even less sense to try and do so in the Aikido Federation commercial markets. So let me kind of pull things out there. So what I'm saying is, uh, you know, you can be McDowell's at the birth of McDonald's. You'll get a decent share. You might even win that battle. But late in the game, let's say if McDowell's opened up now, no. It's just a parody. It, it is doomed to a smaller share of someone else's market. So there's no way you could base a dojo model on that and expect to increase your dojo membership. It will not happen. And the the things I point out there is when they, and I go over this in greater detail later, but when the federation systems came up, it was kind of doable. All of those satellite dojos were kind of McDowell's at the start of them. You could kind of do it. But as the market has been there or uh, for a while and or as the market is showing that it's beginning to fail, such as in the Aikido market, you don't have the same success rate with the satellite dojo. In fact, they have the opposite. And, and, and we see this even at the Hambu level. There's just less people there. What, what we want instead is dojo uniqueness. Not institutional inertia. I'm, I do what everyone else is doing. Back to the piece. Rather than following this fallacy, one should follow this mantra instead. If your ideal dojo could exist or does exist someplace else, you should go and train there. This is how unique your dojo should be instead. It must be nowhere else. Again, it needs to be one of a kind. And it must be this even if someone tries to copy element for element what you are doing. Your dojo must be so unique that it cannot even be copied. This is the only way you can find your own market, and finding your own market is one of the easiest ways of successfully dominating a market, of being successful, and, in this case, of having a sustainable and growing dojo membership. So in, in the business world, they talk about red oceans and blue oceans. If you haven't read that book and you're trying to uh, fix your business model for your dojo, I highly recommend it. So using their discourse, a red ocean is the shared market where the industries and the businesses are all competing for a piece of that pie. And you can be somewhat successful there, but usually success in a red ocean where all this, these battles and contention is taking place 
is only successful for a few, one to a few companies. So you can think of the soft drink, Red Ocean, right? It's Coca-Cola and Pepsi, and uh, the rest we don't really know who, and in fact, we're quite surprised when we realize that, you know, this cola is actually owned by Coca-Cola, or, you know, they own Gatorade. What? They do? Yeah, they do. Right. What about water? Oh, no. Dasani water is owned by Coca-Cola, too. Right? So, it not only... Co competition or competing in a red ocean not only benefits only the one to few people, where every other business, every other uh, person trying to compete actually supports those top one to few because they keep people interested in the drinks. Uh, but um, it costs a fortune for these companies to successfully navigate red oceans. So Coca-Cola, uh, you know, if, if they only stay in red oceans, they'll eventually go broke because it's just too costly, even for those few to dominate that red ocean, which is why businesses that are successful and in their books, success is, uh, you know, um, um, financial uh, success over time. So if you're financially successful but, you, but your company burns out in a year, you're not going to get that title attributed to you. So uh, what they point out is that even the red ocean giants spend a lot of energy, effort, and money on trying to find blue ocean waters. Because you need to. It's, it doesn't cost as much to dominate that. You're creating your own market, so you're dominating that market. No one else is doing it. So there's, there's a trend um, in Aikido now, that Aikido Dojo, they're trying to solve this problem. And what they're trying to do is red ocean tactics. They're trying to come in and, okay... I'm going to do. I'm going to bring a, a BJJ instructor into my s school, and then we'll get more members. Or I'm going to bring yoga into my school. Or I'm going to bring Pilates into my school. Or I'm going to bring Feldenkrais into my school. You know. But don't forget. You know, aspect two is we want the transmission of the art as one of our keen interests. We don't, we don't want to be mixed martial arts. We, we, want to, we want to understand that whole issue in a more sophisticated way. It, you know, this idea of, of sticking to a red ocean, to contesting within a red ocean, is actually not Aikido. Yet we see it all the time. This contention for space. We hear it all the time. Maintain your center. Be your own center. Center yourself. Well, you know what? In business practice, that means get out of the red ocean. Find your blue ocean. 
I go into that a little bit more in, in episode 9, part 1. You know, how you can't, you can't. It's too late. The Red Ocean has already been partitioned off. The big players are already in there. And good business sense is find your blue ocean, find your own market. Finding your own market is the easiest way to dominate a market. Back to the piece. How do you create a dojo that cannot be found anywhere else? Start by using your own wants and your own likes, your experiences, your interests, your personality, the information you have accumulated, the lessons you've learned, the mistakes you've made, and the mistakes you've seen others make, etc. To, so to speak, sculpt the image of your ideal dojo, your dojo. Your dojo should be your ideal dojo. Look at every aspect of your current dojo and note if it is contributing to your ideal dojo. Make sure there is no aspect of your dojo that is doing nothing towards your ideal dojo. Make sure there is no aspect of your dojo that is working against your ideal dojo. So this method here, by default, we are all different. It, it actually takes energy to try to make our dojo look like someone else's dojo. The natural state is I have different experiences. I have different wants. I have different insights. Okay. Perfect. Start with those. Use that empirical fact, that ontological fact, to start to free yourself from the institutional inertia, the human tendency to accept without thinking. And to design your market uniqueness. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, why does institutional inertia continue to exist? I mean, who would choose it? Once it's pointed out to you, we tend to go, whoops. But we choose it because it's easy. It takes less self-investment. It takes less courage. It takes less discipline. It takes less self-awareness. I can practice convenience I can practice comfort. And I get all the cultural capital from accepting what everyone else is accepting without question. But where you lose out, as already mentioned, is in the freedom and the will And in discovering your own blue ocean, and therefore in discovering a new market that is yours, and then you lose out in the capacity to dominate that market. If you have a dojo where people cannot go somewhere else and get it, 
then they will come to your dojo. And more importantly, they will stay at your dojo. Back to the piece. Once you have this shape in mind, work and dream and aim everything you have to make the ideal dojo manifested in reality. You must be like an artist painting a painting, a sculptor sculpting, like a composer composing a piece of music. You must work, work, work constantly to generate the shape you are picturing in your mind, in your heart of hearts. Bring that into existence. Do not settle for anything else. Do not compromise. Do not veer. Only allow yourself necessary delay the practice of patience, and the strategy of sequencing. Everything else is about uniting you, who you are, with your dojo and manifested reality. This is important not only from the point of view that training in your own vision is central to your own quality of life, but more importantly regarding student body size is the dojo cho must be able to capitalize upon contagion. Allow me to explain. The dojo must be charismatic, for example. And to be charismatic, the dojo cho must, him or herself, be drawn to his or her dojo. It is by this drawing, this gravitational force, that you draw others to your dojo. And this gravitational force cannot exist between deshi and dojo, or between dojo cho and dojo, if the dojo is not unique and not uniquely desired for, by the dojo cho. So kind of subconsciously, if you model your satellite dojo, you make it a satellite dojo. I'm talking about making it the sun. And you go, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have it be the moon to uh, that third planet from the sun. Right? When you make your dojo a satellite dojo, As I said, you're almost begging the question for this serious deshi. Why am I here? I I could go to the next. I could go to that third planet. Then the other one will go. Hey, I could go to the second planet. Uh, oh, oh, I'm I'm just gonna go to the sun. Right? You are subconsciously as you compete in red oceans. You are subconsciously telling people that you yourself are not attracted to your dojo. And that is subconsciously registered in your deshi. You, you will not be, nor your dojo, will, it will not have gravity. It's orbiting something greater with more gravity. So, this, this is what I mean when I say you don't have, there's no charisma. Here's the irony. You know what? When you take people from a state of convenience and comfort and you train them and cultivate discipline in them, 
oftentimes all they will have is your charisma, your gravity to help them get past themselves. So pedagogically, you're probably going to fail there too. Because psychologically, you won't be able to support them from their old self to their new self. Back to the piece. You must remember, if the dojo cho would rather be training elsewhere, if training at another dojo even exists as a possibility for the dojo cho, then it is also so for the deshi. If the dojo cho is willing to go and train somewhere else, then why should the deshi not go and train somewhere else? This is what I've been repeating. Every once in a while, you know, I mentioned this already in passing, and I mentioned it in part one. One of the things, when you get your Blue Ocean Dojo, and you gain its uniqueness, and you nullify the institutional inertia, your mat gets crowded, not only because it draws people, but more importantly because it keeps people. So in part one, in episode nine, I mentioned that. This is the best strategy for increasing dojo membership is not to lose people. This is also the best strategy for transmitting Aikido at a high quality level. You need people to invest the decades. More than that, in terms of high quality transmission, you need people to train daily. And more than that, you need people to train somewhere at a minimum of four hours a day. And that just can't happen if there's no gravity to you and your dojo. You don't have the psychological support capacity for that much self-transformation. Rather than have your dojo be one dojo of many in a red ocean or even a lesser dojo compared to another one, your dojo should be so unique, so alone in its blue ocean, that for those people who don't end up staying as rare as they will become. And they will ask you, "Is can you recommend another dojo? And, you know, you're like, I just say no. They don't do what we do. Depending on how long they're with me, they think I'm full of crap. Until they go to the other dojo and they go, oh, wow, they don't do what you do. They do this instead and I, it feels less to me. I'm not even talking about technical architectures or, or silly etiquette issues. I'm just talking about overall 
pedagogy, training paradigm, scope of practice. For those, do- for those deshi that stay long enough, it, they actually come to realize it in their own head. And I actually encourage. Go look. Go see. Go study. We're in a blue ocean. That's the gravity. I don't understand how anyone can talk about populating a mat successful business models or the transmission of the art without this blue ocean mentality, without dropping the satellite mentality, without exiting a red ocean. Back to the piece. If you already have a dojo, then practice to counter this fallacy like this. I'm going to list some points. Ask, what is your ideal dojo? Describe it in minute detail. What do you want? Write it all out. Remember, I started this piece using the technology of writing. Use the technology of writing to help you coordinate all your thoughts. Make them consistent. Make them interdependent, codependent. Write it out. Nothing is too small. From what color are your mats to what's in your lobby to how do you pay dues, everything. What is the uniform requirement, everything. Next point. What bothers you about your current dojo? Describe it in minute detail, but also include causations, supports, and correlations for those aspects you list. Same thing. Everyone is rubbed wrong. This, this is another tactic you can use for freeing yourself from institutional inertia. No, no matter what, no matter how engulfed it is in our current organization or our current culture, culture it will sometimes rub us wrong, meaning it will sometimes obviously fail. It's, oh, it's like a glitch in the matrix, right? When that cat, you kind of look at it, it kind of jiggles, you go, whoa, what was that? You'll get those two. Because it goes unquestioned, it's often very much impractical and we live a practice life and as a result, you'll have glitches. Okay, start there. You want, for example, you want people to understand Budo as a way of life. Hey, that is a very good business model because you probably will have uh, that functioning as a way to address the quitters and the dabblers, which reduces your mat numbers, which reduces your quality of transmission, But you know what? You're doing tests. And what you see at tests, people who never train come and train. 
People who barely train, train a lot right before the test. It's, it's a kind of cramming, like in college. It's, it is 100% the antithesis of Marshall. The Marshall mindset is, it's go time now. Not next week. Not next weekend. Now. And now is every moment. And the awareness that we do not rise to the occasion. We fall to the level of our training. That's, that's what happened to that trainee. He, he didn't rise to no quit. He fell to his absence of training. The now of Marshall is understanding that these skills are all perishable and all conditional. And the best way of addressing that is by training all the time. And one of the best ways of doing that is to uphold Budo as a life practice. Not a hobby, not an activity, not a social event. But yet we run tests every month, every two months, and what are we doing? We actually have a psychological model of short-term goals and sporadic behavior. The opposite of Budo as a life practice. The testing model is actually geared towards a life of comfort. Because there's more comfort in knowing if or when or how you're progressing. The mind in, in need of such orientation is a weaker mind. You want to see the difference? Uh, start with the minimum. Train four hours a day and see if it doesn't bring your mind and state of mind and quality of mind up to the surface. Just like that Sistema instructor's drill of the two-minute push-up. It'll do it. For most people, it'll start two minutes in push-up position. We'll start the internal dialoguing and the self-pity. And that'll bring the debate over quitting or not quitting. Same thing. Four hours every day is going to do it. It's just easier to train three days a week, an hour here, two hours there. It's just easier. Less self-investment. Short-term goals, that is much easier 
than now, than the internal nature of now, please, give me a short-term goal. I'll take all this time off between the short-term goal so I can practice self-de-investment. Then I'll take the test and then I'll go back to self-de-investment. It is much easier But the now, where identity and practice and body are mind and mind are unified, takes huge effort. This is why I say Budo, it's not for everyone. And anyone can do it, but not everyone will do it. So Budo. It's not for everyone. It's not an elitist point of view. It's just a fact of the universe. It's a fact of our own humanity, our humanness. So you want to focus in on those times when you see a glitch or you feel a glitch in the institutional inertia. And you want to use the practice of, hey, what is making that possible? So you see the behavior. Wow, wow, my mat is crowded before the test. What is making that possible? The test is that. What, why does the test motivate people for the behavior that I would like to see all the time? Really, it's feeding the, the uh, lesser mind of short-term goals. So, uh, uh, not a well-known fact in a lot of schools, but for the owner-operator, a lot of people quit after black belt. You're like, what? You know, because you're, you're a Q rank, so you're, you can't even imagine it, but it's actually the case. People get a black belt and they, they quit. Because, well, you train them to do that. You train them to be goal-oriented rather than life practice-oriented. Well, they got their goal. And they're just repeating what they repeated for, right, 6Q, 5Q, yellow belt, orange belt, purple belt. They're just doing what you train them to do. Think short-term. Think comfort. Think self-de-investment. Think convenience. Think half-ass. So you have to question these things. Third point. Go through your, pra- your business practices and ask and explain why is that aspect there. Same thing. I'll give you an example from our dojo. There's a lot of schools that will take advantage of electronic pay. And we don't. Well, why? Why don't you? Because electronic pay is convenience. We don't do convenience. It's as simple as that. Can't I do a direct deposit? No. 
No, you can't. You have to come in. You gotta write your check. And you gotta put it in the dues box. By this date. If you're gonna do cash, you're gonna have to put it in an envelope. You're gonna have to write your name on the outside of the envelope. And you're gonna have to write the amount that you put in the envelope. And then you put it in the dues box. Well, it'd be much easier if I could... I, yeah, that's why we're not doing it. Contracts, first and last month. Contracts in general. We don't do it. We want commitment as an internal virtue. We want commitment for the sake of the one doing the commitment. So we don't need to sign a contract. You don't need to give first and last months. That goes against the virtues we want to train and cultivate at the dojo. Wholesale markup. We don't do it. I remember, and again, those of you who might not be running a dojo, you, you don't know this. But as an example, you'll see you know ads one place or another. Come and uh, come get a free month of training, and receive a free gi with your training. And they're like a $99 value on the gi. But at wholesale, the gi probably costs like, especially the ones they offer. Those, the gi's like $13. It's basically one step up from flannel pajamas. Well, what, what are you telling people? What are you training people in? Deception? Enticement? How to make decisions based upon what's good for you, what sounds good to you. These are not martial virtues. These are not of Budo practice. They're the opposite. But all this just goes without question. You're like, well, if, if I don't have a contract, then what's to stop them from quitting? How about gravity? How about uniqueness? How about charisma? Well, if they, uh, if they don't give me first and last months, it, you know, how do I stay open? How about the same things? How about they don't want to quit? Problem solved. Well, if I don't give them that that ghee, they they won't come in. Is that who you want? Is that good source material for Budo training? The person who can be scammed? 
All scams are, are based upon the person's own greed. So that's who you're bringing in. That's going to be your source material. Yeah, you're, you're, that person's going to quit very early on, and that person is not going to meet your goal of high-quality transmission of the art. Because Budo is a warrior practice, and you know what's one of the first things that goes? Self-interest. Warrior culture is, is service over self, not self-interest. This is the exact opposite. Warrior culture is self-sacrifice, not self-interest. Next point. Go through your dojo space itself and point to everything and ask and explain why is that there. So even your decor. I've been in some dojo and they have a lobby section and it's like a hotel lobby. Well, what, what, why did the hotel design a lobby like it does? For people to feel at home and, and to do things they do at home. Put their feet up, chat. Why does that belong in a dojo, in a budo dojo? What do you sometimes see? You have a large kids program. I've been in dojo. You have a large kids program. You have your lobby set up like a hotel lobby. You're telling people, go ahead, do, do, you're at home, be your own, in your own home, follow your own rules, follow the, the character that you have right now, undisciplined, untrained, uncultivated, de-invested, be that person. You know what? They start yelling at their kids from the sidelines. Oh, that's really going to work towards your gravity, your charisma. You're not even central to your own mat on in your own class. You know what's in our lobby? Zabaton and Zafu. And there's only four of them. Again, these are not without reason. They all go towards those three aspects. I want my mat crowded with people who are going to stay there and be capable of a high transmission of the art. And that also keep my business model a successful one. And you can't do that with parents yelling like they're at a soccer game from the sidelines. You are decentralizing yourself. And that's not a matter of power. It is a matter that you cannot, you will not be a psychological support 
for somebody who's trying to self-transform. That, that is beyond you now. So now you have no self-transformation, you have no cultivation. People will remain convenience-based, quitters, dabblers, short goal-oriented. And they quit. That's what those people do, they quit. Your quality of transmission goes down just by that fact. They're not there to learn the more sophisticated, advanced stuff. And here's the thing. Much of that sophisticated, advanced stuff in Aikido actually requires an awakened state of mind. And that too is unreachable. Unreachable by the dabbler, convenient, self-interested person. That too is unique to the dojo where Budo is a life practice and unique to the deshi whose life practice is Budo. Let's stop there. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com, or find us at Facebook at Sentient Center and on our YouTube channel at Sentient One. Thank you for listening.